Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 42. I'm Nacho Gupta. And I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and we're back with some more high-yield emergency medicine review. Let's get this week's episode started with another quick review from a topic posted on the Rosh blog. Let's talk coarctation of the aorta, commonly seen on the in-training exam and important to know for your clinical practice as well. How does coarctation usually present in neonates? As the patent ductus arteriosus, or PDA, closes, the neonate will present in heart failure and shock. Well, that's a scary start. And what's the main chromosomal condition associated with coarctation of the aorta? Another one burned into my memory from medical school. Turner syndrome is associated with coarctation. Turner's is also associated with a webbed neck, short stature, and low-set ears. Right, and you're also missing an X chromosome in Turner syndrome as well, making it a 45XO chromosomal condition. What's the classic physical exam finding in patients with coarctation of the aorta? That would be a blood pressure differential between the arms and legs. Specifically, the pressure on the arms is higher than the legs. Depending on the specific anatomy, you might even note a difference in the pressures between each of the arms. That's a great point. And lastly, what are the classic EKG findings and classic chest x-ray findings associated with coarctation of the aorta? On EKG, you'd expect left ventricular hypertrophy, and on chest x-ray, you might see rib notching. Perfect. Let's get going with the new material for this week. Europe first. Which of the following is typically seen in Korsakoff syndrome? Is it A, cerebellar dysfunction, B, long-term memory impairment, C, ophthalmoplegia, or D, recent memory impairment? Really important and probably underdiagnosed, Korsakoff syndrome is a chronic neurologic disease caused by a thiamine deficiency that typically presents with impairment of recent memory formation, or choice D. Yep, Korsakoff syndrome is also referred to as alcohol-induced persistent amnestic disorder. In addition, patients often exhibit apathy and confabulation, and while it's similar to Wernicke encephalopathy, these are actually distinct syndromes. And many patients will have both at the same time. Up to 80% of those with Wernicke syndrome also have an underlying Korsakoff, hence Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. With Wernicke's encephalopathy, you may additionally see ophthalmoplegia, nystagmus, ataxia, and mental status changes. And the treatment for both is thiamine and magnesium. In those with Wernicke syndrome, the ophthalmoplegia and nystagmus often respond within hours to thiamine administration, whereas the ataxia and mental status changes take days to weeks to improve. Ataxia and mental status changes also have a poorer overall prognosis than ophthalmoplegia and nystagmus. Great start. You're up next. Which of the following is the most common physical exam finding in an abdominal aortic aneurysm? Is it A, abdominal brui, B, diminished femoral pulses, C, duodenal obstruction, or D, pulsatile abdominal mass. Thankfully, this is not something you see every day, but the most common physical exam finding in a patient with a AAA is a pulsatile abdominal mass. That's absolutely correct. Patients with unruptured AAAs rarely have symptoms. When they do, it's usually with a gradual onset and with dull pain. In the case of AAA rupture, patients would have acute severe pain. These patients will be hypotensive and they're critically ill. Unfortunately, even though a pulsatile mass, usually at the level of the umbilicus, is the most common physical exam finding, patient body habitus often limits the exam. We'll have to rely on imaging, either CT or ultrasound, which are both 100% sensitive. CT does have the advantage, though, as it can also detect rupture and a leak. It's also worth remembering the cutoff of 5 centimeters, at which point the risk of rupture increases markedly. And with respect to the other answer choices, choice A, an abdominal brewery, that's pretty uncommon. Choice B, diminished distal pulses. Unless there's rupture, patients usually have adequate distal perfusion. And lastly, choice C, duodenal obstruction, that's a very, very rare finding. All right, you're up for the next one. 
A 24-year-old woman at full term presents with rupture of membranes and contractions. Sterile exam reveals a crowning infant with a visible cord. After elevating the fetal head, what management is indicated? Is it A, clamp and cut the cord and proceed with delivery? B, continue with standard delivery? C, emergent cesarean section? Or D, intravenous tocolysis? A prolapsed umbilical cord requires choice C, an emergent C-section. That's right. When the cord proceeds to the delivery of the fetus, pressure from the presenting parts of the fetus, which is usually the head, compress the cord and disrupts the fetal oxygen supply. It's also important to note that umbilical cord prolapse is associated with malpresentations. These include shoulder, compound, and breech presentations. Hopefully this is caught on pelvic ultrasound before the delivery has gone too far. And there are a few maneuvers you can try to restore fetal blood and oxygen supply before jumping right to the C-section, although of the answer choices, that was certainly right. First, instruct the mother not to push. Then, place the patient in a knee-to-chest position with the bed in Trindelleberg and elevate the presenting part off the umbilical cord. Lastly, place a Foley catheter and install 500 to 750 cc's of saline to lift the fetus off the cord. And if a surgical delivery can't be performed quickly, fundic reduction or manual replacement of the cord into the uterus should be attempted, followed by a rapid vaginal delivery. So to reiterate, step one, elevate the presenting part. Step two, maternal knees to chest. Step three, C-section or cord reduction if surgery isn't possible. Next up, we're moving from a surgical emergency to a medical emergency. You suspect a 35-year-old man has epiglottitis with impending airway compromise. Which of the following is the best method for confirming the diagnosis? Is it A, CT of the neck, B, frontal cervical soft tissue radiograph, C, indirect laryngoscopy, or D, lateral cervical soft tissue radiograph? Not something we see all too often thanks to vaccines, but the answer here is choice C, indirect laryngoscopy. That's right. Unlike direct laryngoscopy, which allows for visualization with the direct line of sight, indirect laryngoscopy relies on instruments like a nasopharyngoscope. Do note, however, that the utmost care should be taken as manipulation can lead to laryngospasm and airway obstruction. And prior to attempting any visualization, humidified oxygen can be administered. Interestingly, there's no data to support the administration of steroids or RACAPI. But before you do anything, make sure you have the patient prepared for an emergent airway and have a surgical airway kit ready at the bedside. And the classic presentation of epiglottitis would be a patient with rapid onset of fever and dysphagia who's drooling, anxious, breathing with inspiratory strider, and speaking with a muffled voice, all while leaning forward. And they're typically toxic appearing in case that wasn't clear. Common etiologies include Haemophilus influenza type B, strep species, Staph aureus, and Moraxella, although very few patients actually have an etiologic organism identified. And back to the answers for a second, if you were to choose choice D, a lateral soft tissue neck x-ray, what sign would you be looking for? You're referring to the thumbprint sign. I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but don't forget the antibiotics. Obviously, airway management is key, but you also have to treat the patient quickly to avoid further deterioration. Great catch. All right, you're up for this next one. A 21-year-old man presents with a stab wound to the right chest. His vitals are a heart rate of 157, a blood pressure of 80 over 40, a respiratory rate of 28 with a SAT of 91%. The patient's intubated and packed red blood cells are started. He has an obvious bleeding wound to the right chest, a midline trachea, and decreased breast sounds on the right. Which of the following should be performed next? Is it A, application of a pelvic binder, B, placement of a right thoracostomy tube, C, right chest thoracotomy, or D, transfer to the operating room. Wow, had a similar patient to this just the other day, shot right through the right chest. Hashtag hero, but let's get back to the question. Sorry, the answer here is choice B, placement of a right thoracostomy tube. 
Perfect. So this patient's in shock. The source of his shock is either hemorrhagic or obstructive from a pneumothorax or from pericardial tamponade. A midline trachea makes tension pneumothorax unlikely, so the decreased breath sounds likely point to hemothorax, which will require a chest thoracostomy tube, which will both be diagnostic and guide management. Right. You're referring to the general guidelines for taking the patient to the operating room for an emergent exploratory thoracotomy. There are a few important indications to remember here, so let's go through them one at a time. Number one, initial output of greater than 20 milliliters per kilogram. Number two, output of over 200 milliliters per hour over the first three hours. Number three, persistent bleeding at more than 7 milliliters per kilogram per hour. Number four, increasing hemothorax on chest x-ray. Number five, persistent hypotension despite adequate blood replacement with other bleeding sources ruled out. And lastly, number six, further decompensation despite initial response to resuscitation. Right, and we covered this back in episode 21 as well. It's definitely worth a revisit. And those criteria you just listed were for an OR thoracotomy. In ED thoracotomy, choice C, that would be indicated in a patient who loses vitals en route to the hospital or in the ED itself. This gives you direct access to the chest to identify and treat tamponade, cardiac lacerations, cross-clamp the aorta, and attempt open cardiac massage. Lastly, for choice D, transfer to the operating room, this patient is too unstable and should be managed further in the ED prior to transfer. The last thing you want is for the patient to expire on the way to the OR. And one last point before you get to the last question of the episode, ED thoracotomies have an exceptionally low survival rate, just 7.5% overall. This speaks to just how sick patients have to get before undergoing this procedure. Wow, 7.4%. I don't know if I'm surprised that that's too low or too high. Moving on to the last question for the episode. A 65-year-old man with a history of hypertension presents with left-sided weakness beginning two hours prior to arrival. He has a blood pressure of 155 over 85. His CT scan shows a small intracerebral hemorrhage. Which of the following therapies is appropriate? Is it A, antihypertensives to lower mean arterial pressure by 25%, B, head of bed elevation to 30 degrees, C, neurosurgical evacuation, or D, prophylactic anti-epileptic drugs? In the setting of an intracerebral hemorrhage, it's important to consider both airway management and maintenance of adequate perfusion, with choice B being part of the latter. So I'll go with choice B, head of the bed elevated at 30 degrees. Intracerebral hemorrhage is responsible for 10 to 15% of all strokes with a whopping mortality of 50%. They're typically caused by hypertensive vasculopathy and amyloid angiopathy. Hemorrhages usually occur in small penetrating arteries in the regions of the basal ganglia and thalamus. And treatment for small intracranial hemorrhages, as you mentioned, is supportive. The head of the bed should be elevated to 30 degrees, and normothermia, normocarbia, and euglycemia should all be maintained. And as for the other answer choices, choice A, lowering the MAP by 25%, guidelines currently recommend only lowering the blood pressure when the systolic approaches 160 to 180, or a MAP over 130. As most patients with ICHs have chronically elevated blood pressures, lowering the BP may decrease cerebral blood flow and potentially worsen outcomes. Choice C, neurosurgical evacuation, in most cases, that does not improve outcomes either. Evacuation or catheter drainage may be beneficial in those with progressive neurologic deterioration or those with cerebellar bleeds. And lastly, choice D, prophylactic anti-epileptic drugs, they don't improve outcomes and may even be harmful, so they certainly aren't indicated. And let's quickly review symptoms associated with stroke locations before we close out with the rapid review. With hemorrhages in the putamen, what symptoms would you expect? Hemorrhages in the putamen would present with contralateral hemiplegia and sensory deficits, as well as homonominous hemianopsia. What about hemorrhages in the thalamus? Thalamic hemorrhages would present with sensory loss greater than motor losses. 
and pontine hemorrhages? Pontine hemorrhages present with pinpoint pupils, coma, and even decerebrate posturing. And lastly, how about cerebellar hemorrhages? Cerebellar hemorrhages often present with vomiting, dizziness, and a cranial nerve 6 palsy. Perfect. Let's close out with a rapid review. Korsakoff syndrome is a chronic neurologic disease caused by thiamine deficiency that typically presents with impairment of recent memory formation. Patients may also exhibit apathy and confabulation. Wernicke's encephalopathy often presents with ophthalmoplegia, nystagmus, ataxia, and mental status changes. Wernicke's encephalopathy and Korsakoff syndrome are often seen simultaneously. Treat both Wernicke and Korsakoff syndrome with thiamine and magnesium. The most common physical exam finding in AAA is a pulsatile mass. At a diameter of 5 centimeters, the risk of rupture increases markedly. Diagnosis is made by ultrasound or CT scan. For umbilical cord prolapse during delivery, plan for an emergency section. If C-section is not possible, attempt manual replacement of the cord into the uterus, followed by rapid vaginal delivery. Epiglottitis classically presents with rapid onset of fever and dysphagia, often with drooling, anxiety, strider, and a muffled voice. The best method for confirming the diagnosis of epiglottitis is via indirect laryngoscopy, which can be done with a nasopharyngoscope. However, be careful as manipulation can lead to laryngospasm and airway obstruction. Make sure a surgical airway kit is available and ready at the bedside. The classic finding on lateral neck x-ray in those with epiglottitis is the thumbprint sign. An ED thoracotomy would be indicated in a patient who loses vitals en route to the hospital or in the ED. For intracranial hemorrhages, treatment is first supportive with airway protection and maintenance of adequate perfusion. Elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees and maintain normothermia, normocarbia, and euglycemia. Current data don't support the use of anti-epileptics. So that wraps up Roshcast episode 42. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help you prepare for the boards and for the wards. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at Rosh Review. And you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones you'd like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review.